Okay, we're back. We have a wonderful friend of the show on. Lou, I'm so happy to have you. I've wanted to sit down and talk to you for forever, and I'm glad we can make it work. So thank you for being here. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Um, how have you been, dude? Pretty awesome. Pretty amazing. I know we, so we just spent like a good 15, 20 minutes talking before this getting worn out. We have Matt on as well. Chelsea could not join because she wasn't feeling right. And that's totally fine. Never a problem with that. But just want you know, we love having people in this program. It is an open forum and you can say whatever you want because I'm a firm believer in, even if you say really, really, really dumb shit, you can always walk it back if you're right about it. So with that, uh, the reason I wanted to have you on, and I guess I can let you introduce yourself and what you do and what you're interested in to whatever degree you want, but it's because this, so the, the program's interesting because we call it Feel Good Finance and it's probably mislabeled at this point. I just call it FGF. And everyone's like, John, you don't talk about stocks and bonds and all the finance stuff. And I'm like, no, you know why? I don't think any of that shit matters. I honestly don't. I think, you know, fine, whatever. Deal with it on your retirement portfolio and you need to eat, I get that. But at the end of the day, the open market and the things that matter are that people are interacting with other people. And if we all understand each other and we're all psychologically in tune, we're going to be significantly happier. Our interactions are going to be better and business is going to happen so much smoother. So you're big in psychology. I know that's what you're doing. That's what you've kind of dedicated your life to. Um, don't want to speak on your behalf for that, but that's why I have you. That's why I find you interesting and why I wanted you here. Well, thank you, John. I find that very touching. And sure. so just to kind of explain my background a little bit, I am currently at Stepsy University. I'm actually graduating this semester with a major in psychology, almost got a minor in health sciences, but that didn't happen because of schedule conflicts. But regardless, I've been involved on Stepsy's campus a lot um, through a lot of different organizations. But specifically psychology related, I am the psychi president at Stetson, so I get to run like the psychology National Honor Society here. Um, I get to work with students as a psychology tutor from anything from neuropsych and biopsych. Basically, you know, where that little connection between biology and psychology kind of meet, that's really my niche. So anything with action potentials in the brain, you got it. Um, for things that I've done, I am a registered behavioral technician. So I specifically work with autistic children. And while I myself do not make the therapies because that is the job for the BCBAs, my supervisors, I get to implement those therapies and talk with my BCBAs of like, okay, how can we improve these treatment programs for our clients? How can we uh, do something better so that our clients are learning to communicate and uh, practice social skills a lot more effectively um, in our clinic? Uh, additionally, I've been a pharmacy technician through Publix, and uh, I have a little bit of drug knowledge, but not too much. But I have been a teacher's assistant for our psychopharmacology class here. Uh, called Drugs, Mind, and Behavior. So I have a lot of stuff. Uh, so I do not have my PhD yet. I hope to get it. Um, I have a few choices of like where I'd like to go, but I'm still kind of thinking about that. And I'm, I'm saying that now because I don't want any listener kind of taking my words as like gospel and as fact, because knowledge is always kind of changing and we are always having new research every year. So I may be right now, but may not be right five years or 10 years from now and always double check everything I say. Do not take everything I say for gospel. It's just the things that I've been taught. No, we're good about that. Don't worry about it. So no one, no one, no one's gonna. But go ahead, Matt. We we need to put our our, our 
uh, disclaimer under our text of every podcast. This is not financial or medical advice. Please do not consider anything as such. Yeah, there's no, I don't know. I feel like someone, Summer actually made a good point earlier. She's like, I feel like you guys are pretty good about saying like, here's what I believe. And the, here's what I believe is such a safe, safe way of doing it. I don't, I don't know. That's, that's why I said what I said earlier. I was like, look, if you say something, if you say something and you're like, wait a minute, that was stupid. Like, seriously, feel free to be like, wait a minute. I don't actually believe that. Let's talk through it. Like, it's just not because I do. I say so much stupid shit on here. <laughs> but I'm so is that something that they brought up earlier? They're like, hey, we need to be real careful what we say. I said, no, we don't. We absolutely do not need to be careful what we say. And they said, well, you're going to get canceled on social media. I said, no, you won't. All you have to do is if you say something and it's genuinely wrong or offensive or hurt someone, apologize and talk about it talk through it it's okay it's fine we're all scared of each other we should never be scared of each other yeah i agree you know make this an open place to kind of discuss things you know kind of talk through biases if needed and maybe some knowledge gaps that we have hell i don't know everything about psychology i can safely say that some of my weakest points in psychology are like biostats. I have kids come every single weekend when I'm a psychology tutor and they're like, hey, do you know this about biostat or something like that? I'm like, there's a statistics tutor right over there. Yeah. Go bother her. <laughs> um, also, social psych, I'm okay at, but more of my niche is like cognitive and um, neuropsychology. I didn't know there were so many different ways to to go about to peel the onion to go about it and so yours is more sort of like a mix between the medical side of things and the mental side of things is that right that is correct so some of the specific stuff i've done so i've worked with research before i am currently a research assistant for dr sarah garsha at setson university and we are specifically looking at tdcs which is transcranial direct current simulation and what it means is like, we're kind of seeing like how that relates to anxiety. So if I zap a part of the brain, um, is that if I kind of not necessarily change electrical stimulation in the brain, but kind of modulate it in a way with some sort of um, electrodes or something, is that going to lead to a change in anxiety? Um, is that gonna change to, a, is that gonna lead to a change in cognition to an extent, memory, um, focus, stuff like that? Are you microdosing electroconvulsive therapy, essentially? Kinda, yeah. I mean, that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, we it's so funny because even people with TDCS studies, they we barely know how it works. It's a very new field in psychology. In fact, it's about I think like 10, 20 years old. It's like really new. And what's funny is okay, maybe not funny. But cute, quirky, different it is um, it's actually thought to be illegal in certain parts of the EU. And um, I don't know too much about that, but my research advisor told me about it recently. It's like, hey, this might be a thing. And I don't know what that's going to mean for our study with TDCS. Um, so it's it's constantly changing. And uh, we don't know for sure, like, if it works, how it works. We know we the theoretical reason but the actual reason is still being discovered. So for a little background, electroconvulsive th- uh, therapy has been around for like a long time. And basically what it does is where they have someone with like treatment resistant depression, they electroshock their brain and it puts them into a grand mal seizure. And essentially it's kind of like the brain's reset button. We like, we're still kind of unsure how a lot of the different effects that electricity plays in the brain, which is kind of what she's doing. 
but this was like a broad spectrum. It's a lot of electricity to the brain and it would treat people with depression that couldn't be treated with drugs or therapy or whatever else. And it's still used. And it seems pretty barbaric that you put someone through this massive seizure with electricity, but the patients that have it tend from my understanding, really appreciate it for what it is. And when they kind of do it periodically, and I'm not exactly sure on the timeline, but they notice the differences when they have it, they feel all better. It's just, like I said, a reset and they're back to somewhat normal. By the time it's about time for the other one, they're like ready and excited to have it happen again. So it's really weird that someone would be like, yeah, I want to have a massive seizure again. So that way I can feel better. And so for her to do this on like a different micro scale where they're kind of targeting specific areas is really interesting from the medical side, because I haven't heard anything about this. Yeah, it definitely is, especially since electroconvulsive therapy also has a history of uh, leading to, maybe not leading to, because I don't want to say causing or proving or anything like that, but it correlates to some loss of memory, um, especially since a lot of memory in terms of localization, it's more on like a mass scale. Like, it yes, a lot of people think of the hippocampus when it comes to memory and stuff. But then you also have the basal ganglia for procedural memory. You have the hippocampus, which is in the limbic system, and it's related to all these emotions and stuff. Um, and even scientists in the past have tried to do lesions to see, okay, if I cut this part of the brain, does that mean this person's going to lose memory? Well, no, it really didn't happen for like one specific part. It only really happened when there were lots and lots and lots of cuts to the brain uh, leading to like loss of memory. And that's what they kind of notice, especially with electroconvulsive. If it is stimulating the entire brain, um, it could lead to more memory loss. So with that microdose of the TDCS, this is theoretically what's supposed to happen. Um, it kind of modulates the electrical activity there instead of just the entire brain. For everybody that can't see right now, the two science nerds have taken over John's show and he is totally zoned out right now. No, no, that's not true. I'm trying to find the right questions because I don't want to insult you with dumb questions. Um, are you ready? I have two. Okay. So my first one was, do you think the electroconvulsive therapy is addictive? Because you said they almost want to come back, like the reset. It's not addictive in the sense that you're going to go through a withdrawal. It's just that it creates a temporary remission of symptoms. And when you start noticing those symptoms come back, you're going to want to have it again because you don't want them anymore. Everything else has failed in, in a sense that like, is a wheelchair addictive to a person that can't walk because when they can't have the wheelchair, they can't get around. No, it's not addictive, but it makes their life a whole lot better and they're able to ambulate and do things. Now, this is the same sense as that. It's not like it's creating any sort of, uh, addictive reward pathway, I don't think. Uh, it, it's just that they, they want to feel normal again. And when they start to feel that like they're depressed and all the symptoms associated, they're like, okay, I want to get this done again. I want to feel back to how I was six months ago when I felt good. You think it's the removal of the toxins and depression symptoms? Not toxins, because it's not necessarily like they've ingested anything that's harming them, but more in a sense that like, yeah, it's, it's the loss of the negative symptoms that they're having previously that they want again. Sure. So I try to relate this because I don't have the science understanding. I just have my base knowledge of what works for me. And all I know for me is that if I get more sunlight, more exercise, if I drink less, if I see my friends, like all the very basic things that seem kind of silly, if all those things are accomplished, 
you generally just feel better and happier. Like it removes these blocks. And my concern is always that medication does not really seem to be doing much for people in the mental health world. It obviously has its purpose, as I know I'm talking to medical people and don't shoot me, but I'm kind of a I'm kind of anti-medication. I'm kind of like, hey, if you can solve it naturally, do that naturally, please. Like don't don't rely on the pill first. The pill is the last resort if you have to, and even then there should be a plan to get off of it. But it kind of it kind of go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, John Cole, you would love this book. It's called Saving Normal. Um, it's written by the director of the DSM-4 and how right like now. he's kind of looking on the DSM-5 and how there's like more of these uh, diagnoses and stuff. And he's thinking like we are over medicating normal behavior and um, adding so many of these and a lot of this feels like it's like for profit. Um, like, why do you need something like um, what's the one it's uh, it's something with, there was one about like a tantrum disorder or something, um, opposite defiant disorder or something like that. There's one of those, there's a, um, one of the new ones was like a binge eating disorder. There was another one. I'm not saying that the specific ones I'm naming are the ones that are delegitimate. After all, I'm not an expert. Um, but those were the few that he was really like mentioning. Uh, what are your thoughts, Matt? So... Theoretically, most docs that go through med school, we are all very pro make lifestyle choices first. That's what we're taught. That's what we should think. And that's what I believe. And I would like to think that most docs believe that. Now, there's a difference in practice of how that works, because when you go out in the field and you tell someone whether they're dealing with a psychological disorder and they need some lifestyle changes to help with that, or if it's a bodily, musculoskeletal, weight-related, whatever else, you tell them, okay, you need to make this change to have an effect. More often than not, the people don't do it. We get caught up in our lives, we're busy with whatever else, it's not going to happen. Yeah, quick fix. So, yes, and so it's not necessarily, some docs do, and I'm not denying this, they jump straight to medications. I think it's more of a cognitive bias of the fact that they've, their experiences in the past is that they've tried to help people. They've spent so much time and effort trying to get people to make these lifestyle changes that would greatly benefit them and no one ever does them. And it's kind of burnt out the docs of trying to do that anymore. So they just go straight to the uh, medications. Now, these medications, all medications have some side effect or another. All medications that are prescribed obviously have a greater benefit than a reward. You're not going to prescribe something that's going to hurt someone more than help them. Now, if you've seen any sort of patient that's had any sort of psychosis or significant uh, psychological disorder, medication is amazing. It can have a 180 turnaround of someone's life, whether it's depression, anxiety, psychosis, bipolar disorder, whatever else. It's such a change. Now, I do think there's a lot of overprescription, and I think there's a whole lot of nature versus nurture and that we could teach people to better deal with scenarios that we just treat with medications now. But I think we're significantly under-resourced. There's not enough availability of therapy and whatever else. The way we parent our children now has a huge effect on how they turn out, the type of uh, psychological issues they have later on in life. So it, it's just a difficult thing to deal with. And it, as of now, the easiest solution that we have in society is to put people on medication in a lot of cases. Yeah, and to add on to that, um, 
So like with this lifestyle stuff, a lot of people when they're like 65 and older, like their average number of medications goes up. I think the average is around like six or like a little above that. And when a lot of these older people start kind of getting like more neurocognitive stuff and more memory loss, chances are it's going to be a lot harder for them to keep up with all those medications. Um, And especially um, not only with geriatric people, but with other people. When it comes to medications to my stance, it comes to how well you know the disorder. So for example, in psychology world, um, if you are a therapist and stuff, you really need to know the difference between certain disorders because some of them sound very, very alike. One of the biggest ones that are like confused very easily are bipolar disorder and borderline personality disorder um, because there's like some elements of symptoms that are somewhat similar, but they are very different. And I know some people who have been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder who have been given prescriptions like aripiprazole. Aripiprazole being an antipsychotic that can be very helpful for those with bipolar disorder. And with those people with BPD or borderline, and when they take that, they're like, this is not working. Like, what do you mean? Like, yes, they both have mood swings, but they're mood swings for different purposes and mood swings with different biological things going on too. So really knowing the difference between disorders is vital if you're gonna do medication. And in fact, a lot of psychologists that I've worked with, a lot of them don't like doing the whole medication thing because it's not like medications are always bad. It's just that there's a liability to it because there there are definitely medications that are absolutely helpful. I know for me personally, I take Adderall, I have ADHD. It is something that it's not just because I wanna focus in school. It's something that affects my relationships. It's something that affects like my life and my timing and my mood. And it's something that I have found very helpful. And like you were saying earlier, like, oh, a person who can't walk and needs a wheelchair. It's not like you're addicted to the wheelchair. You're just happy to have the wheelchair because it works. Same thing with me and my medications. So really comes down to your expertise and how much liability you want to put onto yourself. That's the biggest thing that I preach. And I've told this before, whether it's different people is we've always looked at psychological disorders as something different, something else, something that can be overcame just by thinking harder, working harder mentally. And there's been this huge stigma of getting it treated, whether it's depression, anxiety, or ADHD, or whatever else. And the way I always explain it is, is if you had a broken arm, you're gonna go to the ER, you're going to get pain medication, you're gonna get a cast put on that. Depression and anxiety is, it's it's the same thing. It's an illness, you need to get it treated and help for that you shouldn't feel like it's some burden that you have to carry on your shoulders all on your own and that you shouldn't go get help for it go get it fixed like there's no shame in it one bit and you're going to feel so much better so much different if you've got these issues whether it's medication or talking to a therapist get it done like we shouldn't be stigmatizing people for having these things so many people have it and they deserve the help they need and they shouldn't be mocked for it Exactly. And not only that, but have the resources to explore what works for them. Because, you know, there's the second wave cognitive behavioral therapies, you know, like talk therapy and stuff like that. That works for some people, but other people make it feel like they when they go through it, it's like, wait, are they gaslighting me to feel happy? And that's when like I 
think like, okay, maybe acceptance commitment therapy is better for you. Maybe um, DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy may be better for you so that you're combining not only like those better thoughts and it's not like you're just telling yourself to be happy and maybe taking these medications, but also like doing actions. When it comes to research in terms of depression, anxiety, and CBT, like what is the most effective part of that? Is it the cognitive part or the behavioral part? While they're both effective, you cannot have CBT without the behavioral part. That is the part that is the most effective part um, because you're not only just like walk, you're not just talking the talk, you're walking the walk in terms of your treatment. Kind of falls along with the recent interviews John's done with Alex Mamara. Like he talked about like a lot of this where in his case, it's some of these seminars he goes to where they, it, it's more of the self-growth uh, that type of thing where you, you can go to a self-help seminar and they can just teach you and tell you how great you are and you can go and get up in the morning and say I'm great 15 times in the mirror but unless you start acting it and that's the whole kind of point of what he does with these things is he, he adapts his personality and his actions and that's similar in a sense to what we're talking about here and just a different more common accepted thing where people would do these things they go to seminars they learn how to be a better person Alex is yeah. such an awesome guy. I adore the fuck out of him. And having him on, we, we literally talked for a full two hours. And by like an hour 45, I was getting a little burned out. But um, no, I, it's, I'm, I'm actually kind of glad you brought him up. He might be a special case because he has one of the most strong, like will, willful minds I've ever met. And I don't think everyone is capable of getting up and taking a cold shower the first thing you do, and then looking in the mirror for 10 minutes, telling yourself how much you love yourself while jumping up and down. He is quite literally, in the best sense, built different, which is, I just, I love him so much, and he's he's got so much energy. Um, I guess where I wanted to steer this next was, because I know you guys you guys are having a great time, I don't want to interrupt you, but um, my, uh, my thing was, look, what do you think about, all these folks that I know and you know, we all know them. Everyone knows someone who has is struggling with these mental issues and is going through these problems and they're on all these medications and it does not seem to be helping. And they seem to always be reaching out to someone else for help. And my perspective is, I'll just get it out before I let you guys take over for another 20 minutes, was like, look, my first thing is, are you getting enough sunshine? Like quite literally vitamin D can change your entire perspective. It is wonderful and we don't get enough of it. Two, are you exercising? The human body needs to be worked. It needs to be stressed out. It needs to be used. If you don't use it, you're screwed. Three, are you eating a whole lot of processed sugar? Because if you are, you're probably toast. There's nothing you can do about it. It's going to morph your brain. So if you don't have those three things going for you, it doesn't really matter what medication you're taking in my mind. And I'm not a doctor. I've literally, I work in real estate. I have no, no medical experience at all. But those things make sense to me. And they seem to work for everyone that tries them. At least in a minimal sense, if not the entire. They're not so, the end all be all. Right, right, right. No, yeah. I'm, I'm saying a start. It's a, it's a, it's a beginning. And if you don't have them, and if you haven't tried them first, why not? Right. We'd like people to try them first, yes. And I think they're great things that can create a significant change in some people. But it's not a requirement. There's plenty of people that have almost total resolution of symptoms after starting therapy or medications and they don't do this type of stuff now can it help yes but it's not a requirement for having any change 
and she can validate or disagree with me totally. I, I, I totally validate. And I also want to stress the importance, not only of like physical things you're doing, because even though like the behavioral part is the most important, but when it comes to behaviors as well, it's also what you are telling yourself because a lot of people with depression, anxiety and stuff, um, I saw this really good quote where it's just like, people who are depressed, they think a lot about the past. People with anxiety, they tend to think a lot about the future. Um, you can feel more at peace when you are present. That's why one of the big things in psychology that's coming up right now is meditation and mindfulness. So keeping along like uh, these healthy habits, not just to be healthy and look healthy, but because like when you do these habits, it's a form of self-care. It's a form of showing like I I love my body, therefore I'm gonna give it good food. I love my body and my mind, therefore I'm gonna get a good amount of sleep. I love my body, therefore I'm gonna exercise, I'm gonna work it out. And you don't have to be a total gym rat and like taking pre-workout and stuff like that. You can just do what you want. Cycling, running, even walking can make such a big difference in terms of your mental health. So like you said, JC, it really, comes to people's personal preferences. And while you seem to have a change when it comes to like, oh, getting more sunlight, doing more workout, having a better food, that works for you, that's awesome. But the thing about psychology is it's the study of the individual and how the individual is unique. So when it comes to, okay, this may work for you, but maybe I need Paxil um, in order to feel better and like get rid of my depression. Well. That's a non-clinical way of saying it, but to treat my depression, maybe I need CBT, DBT, ACT. There's so many different options and yeah, just loving yourself, loving your body, focusing on your thoughts and behaviors. That's what's important. The individuality always makes perfect sense to me because there are no two people that are exactly alike and I'm always on board with that. I try to break things down simply as much as possible because it just it seems like if you build on the basics you go a lot you go a lot further and if, then if you're just only dealing with the very scientific stuff so i try to break things down and i i love what you're saying about this because i think it's all absolutely true and makes sense it makes sense in my head my big thing is that humans as a whole seem to require accomplishment we need to get something done and so i think that's sort of why something like a gym or a running strip or any kind of exercise makes sense because you're constantly pushing for more. And if you get an accomplishment done, you feel good. You're like, Oh man, like, I don't know what that was. I, I literally cannot put a, I can't put a word to it, but I did something and now I want to do something a little more. We're just, we're kind of wired that way. It seems like as a whole. Yeah. I've actually seen, um, there was this article on LinkedIn where it's talking about morning people are happier than night owls. And I was wondering like why that was. So first off, I looked at the study itself. It was actually a very small like subject size. I think it was like under a hundred. And they were also from the West. They were all specifically American college students, which is a biased sample because, you know, American college students are different from American geriatric people or children or people in other countries and other cultures. So I remember on LinkedIn making a comment of like, I wonder how much of this uh like focus on achievement and uh in america is really the reason why morning people are happier in these american subjects than say night people because when you get up in the morning um you have more time to do things during the day get stuff done Um, a lot of people tend to be very focused from like 10 a.m to 2 p.m so when you're 
like waking up before that and give yourself time to wake up and then finally do all that stuff, chances are you're probably going to get more stuff done. Not everybody's the same, but it goes. Um, So I was just thinking like what the cultural differences are in terms of like how much is achievement really that important um, for other cultures. So it may be true for us that achievement's very important, um, but I'm going to slightly disagree with you and say like some people are just like, I just want to live a happy life. Achievement, I don't care. Oh, I'm on board. No, no, no. So it, I'm sorry. I don't want to cut you off, Matt. All, all I had to say was I'm so happy you brought up the unhealthy ridiculousness we have on the like the obsessiveness with achievement. It's unbelievable because I work in a sales industry and everyone's like, oh, my God, more, more, more numbers, 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 higher, higher, higher. And I'm like, dude, wait, have you seen your family this month? <laughs> Hang on. It is not healthy. There's nothing good about it. And I am I am so I'm a little obsessed with kind of breaking it down and having. I want to have everyone sit down and just take a little kumbaya circle and be like, guys, wait a minute. What do you get if you sell 100 million things? You get a Ferrari. Do you have a family to enjoy that Ferrari with? No. Does it matter? No. It literally does not matter without the human connection. I'm so glad you brought that up. Matt, did you want to say something? Matt does. I was just going to say that <laughs> achievement and happiness, it's totally unrelated to psychology because and in a sense and like depression and anxiety and that type of thing because like we we overuse the terms depression and anxiety now anytime someone's sad they like to say they use the term i'm depressed like it's a synonym or, or if they're slightly anxious they say i had a panic attack or an anxiety attack which it, they're they're not one of the same people overuse it like it, it's over extrapolation but like there are plenty of people where you can be achieving everything you can have a good family a great job you can be going to the gym, eating good foods, or whatever else, and you can still be really depressed. Right. You can be succeeding in every sense. Everything's going right. It, it's not something that's linked to any physical sense of whatever you're doing. It, it doesn't matter. You can be doing everything you're supposed to do. And so what should be the ideal life? Everybody looks at you and you go, oh, my God, that, that, that's amazing. And then you can still internally be having the worst time of your life. Yeah, I mean, have you seen Princess Carolyn from BoJack Horseman? That's a great example of a character going through. Like, she's this top-notch manager in Hollywood, and yet she's just really depressed, and that's why she wants that kid during the show, because that's, like, a form of connection. And, like, she wants Jonah, and at the end of the thing, I hope that's not spoiling anything. But, yeah, no, I completely agree, and... I think it also comes from like a lack of understanding your own values and like the things that you enjoy. Cause um, I know a bunch of people may go into a field. I think someone mentioned this earlier of like, oh, because it's a monet. I think Matt, you said this earlier. It's a monetary win if you become a doctor. Like you can get paid hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars if you become a doctor. But a lot of people don't think about, well, that's a lot of time, you know, whether you're doing surgeries or you're running around the hospital, it takes years in order to get to that place and you're not getting paid a lot. And then once you get there, like you could be spending hours just in the hospital and then dealing with the newbies and then dealing with your patients. And that's a lot of stress to put on yourself. If you don't like that type of stuff, that may not be worth it at the end of the day. So it's just important to know what you love not only about the world, but about yourself. I think even if you meet all the things that you love, that like you can still be depressed in a severe sense. Like it's, it's nothing to do with you or what you're doing or what everybody else thinks you're doing. It, it's, 
it's a disease that occurs. It's not something you any you asked for or instigated or whatever else. Like I'm very happy that I made it to med school. I'm very happy I made it where at. I never thought I would be here. In a, a sense, I should be super excited, but I've definitely had periods, particularly the first two years, where I was severely depressed, though, like going through it. But I was doing everything I wanted to do. I was so excited to get there. But it's nothing I did. It's just sometimes it is situational, and that's fine. But other times it's not. It's just a totally idiopathic thing, which in non-medical terms means it just happens. We don't know why. It just does. You can't do anything to change it. It's just how it works. And that's absolutely true. If you ask someone who has been diagnosed with major depression disorder and you ask, like, why are you so depressed? A lot of times you'll get it. I don't know. It just kind of happens. And that's really true. Maybe I'm just an optimist and stuff. But and like we said earlier, obviously, it depends on the person, like how someone gets over, not gets over, but how they treat their depression. So that's a really good point, Matt, that like, Yes, it is important to know what you love, but also things just happen. Shit just hits the fan and you just got to deal with it. You can't blame yourself for feeling that way because I think a lot of people do. They get depressed and they blame themselves, even though they're doing everything right. Everybody else may feel they're doing everything right. They just feel bad about it. It's like, no, 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 no. Just let's do what we can to get ourselves or yourself better and move forward. Let's not put any blame on anyone. This is a no fault disease here. It's not like you smoked cigarettes for 60 years and got lung cancer like you didn't do anything here <laughs> so true well i think so and again I, I like to simplify things and go back to the source if possible and again no medical experience but it seems to me that we don't satisfy as modern humans who work in a modern environment and go to school in a modern environment and do all these things we have all these problems and we do not have lions and tigers chasing us on a day-to-day -day basis for the most part, maybe someone does, but either way, we are not really satisfying any of the needs that humans have been wired with thousands of years ago. You are not hunting. You are not reproducing for the most part. You're not working for your food. You're trying to like, you're surrounded by comfort all the time. And that has always seemed to me like an issue. Like, wait, I'm not saying the comfort's the issue, just that Maybe the reason why a lot of people are feeling these and we can't explain it is because we're not fulfilling any of the stuff that we were originally wired to do. Like we're not, we're not hitting any of these base needs, not a one. Well, we're not liver king. We're not some primal I'm not sense saying that we have to he's, eat he's crazy. raw liver or whatever else to <laughs> and he's a liar. Uh, feel fulfilled. No. Yes, we did those things in the past, but we grow as people it's not like we were wired <laughs> to like yes we should run away from cheetahs but it doesn't mean it like drastically changes for the rest of our lives i mean we're hundreds of years away from when we were doing these caveman things if you don't think we've psychologically grown since then then we're in big trouble no i'm not saying we haven't grown i'm saying that maybe there's some remnant of it still that's affecting us so like think of it this way have you if you ever if you go hiking like in the mountains and you're out in nature you probably feel right you're surrounded by fresh air you're exercising your body just feels correct right i mean have you guys had that experience my question yeah. to you would be is it because it's a going back to doing the things of the past or removing the stresses of the present i'd say it's a little bit of both i'd say you're you're doing one and the other I mean, we don't have any studies to prove one way or the other. Not I know either. there are plenty of studies that say that interaction with nature, exercise, eating healthy, all that type of stuff does wonderful things for you. And yes, those are the things that we did in the past. 
because we didn't have the modern things we do now that are bad. But I think a lot of it is we've created a lot of real or artificial stress in modern society. And when we do these things that people did in the past, they're much simpler and don't have the stresses that we've created on ourselves now. And you're doing something to relax. And it's not like you're keeping up with your uh, commercial real estate job where you're focusing on that all day. You're intentionally going out and doing something in nature where you're present, focusing on nature and not your cell phone. It's eliminating probably your cell phone service and the people that are calling and texting you and whatever else. I think there a significant portion of us removing modern stresses and not getting back to uh, primal achievement, I guess. Are those not the same thing, though? I mean, you're removing. So, like, I'm just saying that modern society has brought a lot of comforts, but it's brought a lot of really bad things as well. And all those bad things are why we're unhappy. But I think that um, with time, like human needs evolve. Sure. We as humans have evolved over like these thousands of years. So of our needs, so of our environments. And what humans have always had is a sense of innovation. I mean, no think doubt. our, you know, our gray matter and our white matter, like the big amount of it in our brains that is marginally larger compared to a lot of animals in the animal kingdom not saying that we're above animals or anything in fact we are just another form of animal but it is something that does set us apart to an extent and with that like desire for innovation you know from finding fire and stuff like that yeah that may be from like a few thousand years ago but now um because we have innovated so much um and we're always trying to improve 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 that just comes new solutions but also new problems it's not something like we need to return to monkey or anything sure. we just um kind of have to kind of i don't want to say accept the things that the way they are because obviously there are some issues that need to be solved um but understand that well there's always going to be some problems but as humans, we're always going to find solutions to that. So whether it's like going back to nature, I don't see that as like going back to like a primal state. It's just like what Matt was saying of like, this is something that's relaxing for you. And that in of itself is an adaptive trait that humans have. It's like, okay, I'm feeling stressed right now. What can I do? Um, if you know how to find that stress relieving thing, then you are already, you have I don't want to say, I want to say like naturally selected to like be better at being aware of yourself and like your stress and managing it better. Makes sense to me. I just, I, I know a couple farmers and they all seem, they all seem happier than me. And I, the only, the only real differences we have, and there's not much of a monetary difference. It's that they're existing out in nature. They're working with animals and the purpose that they'll, that they are fulfilling is very real and wholesome and so a lot of the purposes we like a lot of the higher paying jobs in the world are like i mean i so if you don't know matt knows this i have a gigantic vendetta against the insurance world i think it's wrong and the conflict of interest is just it's you cannot ignore how broken and horrible the system is it incentivizes companies to hurt the people that they're supposed to be representing it does not help anyone except the people sitting behind the desks making the money and i sit there and look like there's nothing fulfilling about that job. You're not helping anyone. Your job is to maybe kind of sort of help them if the law requires you to, but like your goal is actually to find a way to not help them and keep the money. So that's not fulfilling. On the other hand, you're working in nature. You're surrounded by animals and animals are the purest sense of nature. They have no biases. They are just literally working to survive. 
and they have a job, they do their job, they eat, they reproduce, they die. It's what they do. It's simple. There's no convolution. You're working with that. There's no messiness and you're just, you're just existing and you're providing food to other people. That seems so much happier and simpler to me. I think there's an equal amount of unhappy, depressed farmers as there's happy farmers as compared to unhappy, depressed people working in the other job as there's probably happy doing the job. <laughs> sure, like, probably. Like, like, like there's plenty of doctors that are burnt out having a terrible time. There's some that love it. It's the best time of their life. They're absolutely enjoying it. I think farmers are the same thing. I think yeah. you, you, farmers, I think in a sense, in a nurture sense, what that they brought up to be is they're a lot more stoic. They're not going to complain as much. They're just going to get things done. And if you've ever heard some of the stories of farmers that come into the emergency department, they'll come in with half their arm lopped off and their pain will be at a four. Whereas there'd be other patients that come in with a paper cut and they'll say it's a 10 while they text on their phone. They're a different breed. They're built different. They're not going to complain as much and they're going to be happy with it. And I don't think it's a nature thing as much as it is a nurture. Matt, we also is... have to think about correlation too, because you know, you may know like a few people like farmers who seem happy, but just because they're a farmer, it doesn't mean that's causing them to be happy. Um, like I'm curious as to say, like, if you have the, if you ask those farmer friends and be like, Hey, farmer friends. So you like, why are you happy? I know that's like a really like weird question. It can go into like 10 million different ways, but kind of considering like, well, you know, how is this person really feeling? Maybe, maybe not why, but like, what are some of the things that are great in their life? What are the, some of the things that they could improve? Um, not necessarily why they're happy, but like understanding like what's in their life that does make them happy. That's rain makes corn and corn makes whiskey. <laughs> great. <Fair enough>. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I love having you on here, Matt and Lou. I'm so happy you're here because you guys like I have these, I have these things in my head that just make such perfect sense. And you come in and you're like, you have these arguments that, they, they make sense. They fully disagree with what I'm saying, but they they, they still make sense, and I still like it. Um, I do have somewhere I'm going with this. Do you guys mind if I go to the bathroom real quick? Absolutely. Yeah. I need to do the same. Cool. Quick break. <laughs> All right. We're back. So I kind of forgot where we were. We were talking about um, – I had a good point that I thought was good about – getting back to the basic stuff, and you guys kind of disproved that. And where I was leading to it was that – I feel like a lot of the mental health issues that we struggle with today are very much brought on by environments and environments is semi uncontrollable. I think if only because of the economic system we live in, which I also think is completely broken, but I couldn't fix it. So it's not for me to complain about, but the environment thing was a big thing for me. I mean, yeah, to a degree. I mean, that's the whole nature versus nurture debate, whether or not this is something that is inherently built into this person or whether it was something that was brought on by their experiences in life. I mean, it, we we have to play that in. Not everything's built into everybody's genes. It, obviously, what you're doing around you can have a huge effect on you. There's plenty of people that will smoke for 60 years and get lung cancer. There's other people that smoke for 60 years and not get lung cancer. There's people that won't smoke at all and still get lung cancer. But it, it doesn't really matter. There's some things that are built into our bodies, some things that are a result of what we do around us. Or, so we, we don't, you can't guarantee something's 100% going or not going to happen. Right. 
I'm I'm in the business of predicting things, and if you if you're in the business of predicting things, you know there's no way to predict anything. It's absolutely always up to chance, unless it's two plus two. So a big part of that is understanding the environment in which that thing exists. So if someone comes in and says, "Hey, John, I need to know what this property's worth," I'll say, "All right, I need to know a lot about you. I need to know a lot about the surrounding area. I need to know a lot about the history, and then I need to make a really good guess based on what's happening around that." with a whole bunch of factors that I cannot predict. There's no way and I have no effect on them. And the best I can do is give an educated guess. It feels that's like- That's what a lot of doctoring is. Right, right. That's what most of life is. I mean, we, we take patients, we take their history, what has happened to them in the past, what they currently do, what they've done in the past. And we try to predict what's going to happen going forward. Sure. But even when you have things like, well, best well-known things let's say the BRCA gene brca it's highly associated with breast cancer and lots of women get tested for it if it runs in their family right mm. so your mom your aunt your cousin whatever else if you have it you have a much higher chance of having breast cancer but because you have it doesn't mean you're going to get breast cancer doesn't mean you're not going to get it either but we do things and uh, have reactionary actions as a result of it there's lots of women that get mastectomies and remove their breasts and get implants or don't whatever as a result, just to protect, protect themselves. But they may have never gotten breast cancer in their life or they may have, but we do things just based off percentages of what we can best guess will happen or won't All in the yeah, interest even, of, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, you're all good. Um, even in terms of not just disorders, but just in like executive functioning in the psychology world. Um, so there is this one test called um, the Tower of London. It is something that's supposed to look at planning ability and problem solving ability and stuff like that. And what's weird is that it's supposed to say like, oh, this is like how good your ability is in this one executive functioning thing. But the thing is, people are fluid. Um, sometimes they do really well in the Tower of London. Other times you're having an off day. Maybe you're feeling sad. Maybe you're thinking about something else during the test and you don't do as good. So there's that part of the environment, too, of like not only, you know, all the disorders and the diseases that Matt is talking about, but just you on a regular basis and like your own cognitive functioning kind of like wavering. IQ itself even has been said, um, this is our current understanding of IQ. It's on a spectrum. So depending on if you have more resources in your environment, um, including like uh, access to good health care, good food, good water, shelter, uh, love and affection from like, like the people you attach to all that good stuff, chances are you're going to be on the higher end of that spectrum. But if you don't have as many accesses to those things, Unfortunately, for some people, that could mean that your IQ does go down. Now, granted, IQ does have a history of racism and bigotry that I don't have the time to go into. And that is a genuine thing wrong with IQ. It has improved over time, but it, we do have to take that into account. But it, is it significant when you do see changes depending on environmental changes? Absolutely. Do you think EQ is a better measure? Um. It depends. I don't know too much research on EQ. I do think that emotional processing is important to intelligence. In fact, for multiple intelligences, intrapersonal intelligence is one of those main intelligences. But I have seen, I, I think I've seen only one study where it says, oh, also, if I look purple now, my hydroponic plant turned on. Uh, so you look fine. If you, 
Yeah, yeah, I have these little plans. I'll talk about them later, but um, there is this little correlation between like better processing of uh, emotional events and IQ. So it makes sense to me, like we'd want to find something to measure potential, but that almost seems impossible. Yeah, I don't think we can really say at birth, you've yeeted out a child of your womb. And go, ah, <laughs> that one's going to be president right there. I hate that you, <laughs> I hate the way you right. said that. <laughs> <laughs> and there is something called like the halo effect where, you know, if you set these expectations on somebody and like you treat someone better, um, that person might eventually reflect your expectations of them so like if you treat them well and act like they're going to be this great student chances are they are going to be a better student but there's also i think it's called the fuck you effect or like screw you effect where um no it's something like that well the pygmalion effect is the name of like good expectations and then like better outcomes correlational wise but yeah if you think that someone's a loser and you tell them that they're a loser a lot um, that could eventually mean like, oh, maybe I am a loser. And like, then it correlates to worser outcomes for that person in whatever thing. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. Exactly. That's what it is. So, sorry, that was Matt. Matt, <laughs> Matt sorry. Matt's fiance is grilling chicken <laughs> or frying chicken and it's making a noise. Um all right, either way, I was the self-fulfilling prophecy is really fun. So there's a book called Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. I've read bits and pieces of it. I haven't read it all the way through, but essentially it's sort of it's sort of exactly that uh, from what I can tell. Again, I should probably read this book before I quote it in any way, but a lot of it is look, most of the things that you're noticing are probably one a reflection of yourself and two a reflection of your initial reaction to this person or thing. It's all decisions that you've made because let me tie it back to what I said before. The human brain was wired a certain way. It needed to make a decision. Am I going to run or am I going to stay? And it has to decide in a split second or else it dies. So you make those decisions, you make those assumptions and all of a sudden friend or foe is ingrained. And so now you see someone, you are able to look them up and down and make a full calculation of how you feel about them in the blink of an eye. And most of the time, actually probably all the time, it's completely wrong. It is absolutely incorrect and makes no sense. Then you get to know that person. You're like, holy shit, this guy's great. This gal's great. Like, what? <laughs> Why did I ever feel this way about this person? Just because I saw something and I had this weird little click in my head? Doesn't make any sense. I wish we didn't have that. It'd be great if we can get rid of that. I mean, it also depends on background of people, too. Um, sure. You know, with your own upbringing and stuff. So if... You know, there's like the things of like trust versus mistrust, like all those like Piaget type stages um, and Erickson and all those people. Um, attachment, as it was mentioned earlier, is very important to development. So if you don't trust your caregivers, that may make it a lot harder for you to trust people later on. And then like when you get those little clicks, when you're meeting people for the first time of like, oh, God, this person reminds me of my abusive mother. Oh my God. Um, I don't know if I can trust this person, but then you realize later, like, oh, I just needed time, I guess. Um, that could explain it. Um, as well as like other issues or something like red flags, if you'll say, about people. 
that seems like something that most people are not willing to face though. Like, so I know something that Alex and I talked about pretty in depth and it was one of the, one of the conferences or one of the events that he went to where they basically said, we need you to go real deep here and it's going to be weird. It's going to be super out of your comfort zone. And we need you to dig up the worst memory you have and we want you to confront it. I don't think most of us are willing to do that. So we're just going to have these strange ticks for the most of our life. And until we're all willing to, all right, so sorry, different turn here. And this is something that I found interesting. Um, Love him or hate him. I'm a big fan of Joe Rogan and all the stuff that he does. So he had John Bernthal on, and we're not going to talk about Rogan. Who cares? Whatever. But he had John Bernthal, the actor, on. And one of the things that Bernthal talked about was he went to acting school in St. Petersburg in Russia. And in Russia, again, there's a lot of stuff going on there that we don't need to talk about right now. But one of the things that he'd mentioned was, look, it's different there in the sense that if you ask someone, hey, how are you doing? If they're not doing well, they will straight up break down and cry in front of you. And that's a normal thing. It is completely fine. And no one's going to have an issue with it. They're like, oh, shit, man, this guy's having a really bad day. Yeah, cry it out, whatever. Around here in America, you don't do that. If you do, um, everyone's going to avoid you to the highest degree, which is probably not healthy at all. So I think. Go ahead. I sorry to interrupt you. Um, I think just to make a very brief little tie-in as we were saying earlier like there's such a huge stigma with mental health and getting treatment and stuff and while that is going down now there is still this thing of like oh like you have borderline personality disorder so that means you're toxic oh so you have anxiety so that means you're a killjoy oh like like even if you don't say things exactly like that you still get people kind of like um treating you differently as a result of that or maybe not like saying it out loud, but assuming things of you already and like, okay, maybe this person is not going to handle this environment. So I'm not going to invite them to this thing, even though they may think that it's the most fun thing in the world, but continue. No, I, I actually like where you're going. So I think that's a social media fueled thing. I think it's almost, you almost get clout from, from identifying and pointing out the, and I say this with quotations, like the problems in someone and saying, I'm going to avoid them because it's good for me because we prioritize achievement. We're like, Hey, we want, we want everyone to, you know, to succeed and be the best they can. And succeeding means that you only surround yourself with people who are doing the best, but that inherently is sort of an oxymoron. It's like, we all want to win, but to win, we all have to push each other down, which doesn't work. It doesn't, it has never worked, never has the, the one plus one equals two environment has always beaten out the one minus one equals zero every time. It's the scarcity mindset has always lost. I don't know what you feel about that. In fact, I've seen actually um, kind of the opposite. So when I was in cognitive psychology, we did like this little thing where we had to take risks. And what they would do is we would kind of be given either like a guaranteed like win or loss or you could spin a wheel and possibly earn more or possibly lose more of that money. So the goal of the game is to earn as much money as possible, um, whether you choose the automatic gain or like spinning the wheel and hoping that you get a game. Um, and what the study finds is that a lot of people actually are more willing to spin the wheel once there's a guaranteed loss. And they're willing to risk more when there's more risk at hand. Cause it's just like, well, um, if I get the gain, 
like automatically, yeah, I'm going to get the gain. I'm not going to spin the wheel and possibly get more because a lot of people play it safe there. Um, whereas with, I guess this ties into the scarcity mindset of like, you know, in terms of like, okay, what am I going to lose? Oh, I'm going to lose $700. Well, maybe I can spin this and possibly get a 60% chance of actually winning back a thousand dollars. Um, so that kind of plays into, well, you know, when people are just like, oh God, like there's a scarcity, like I need to do this one thing now. There's, um, a like a buy-in, I guess, for lack of a better word to kind of go towards the scarcity, you know, for the chance that you might get something out of it. I hope that makes sense. Did So did more people, did more people take the chance on the wheel instead of taking the guarantee? So when given the choice of like, oh, you're guaranteed to either lose the $500 or you can spin the wheel when usually given that guaranteed loss, they were more likely to spin that wheel and try to get the win sure hopefully well no one wants a guaranteed loss i mean we're we're wired against that right exactly that makes sense to me i mean so gambling's gotten really big and it, it almost feels like gambling ties into our sort of ingrained biases because we love we love the dopamine we get from winning and we just uh, humans love that little hit and sports gambling is now legal in a lot of places and it feels like a lot of people are doing it. And while I enjoy the casual sports bet with my friends, I've watched a lot of people go down that hole and just lose many, 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 many dollars um, to the point where they're really hurting themselves and their family. And it's just, it feels addictive and wrong. I mean, I'm not going to say that this person is addicted, but you guys know what CSGO is, right? I do. Matt yeah, Mister. so my boyfriend, Matt, who's, yeah, my boyfriend's name is Matt. That's so funny. Different Matt, um, different he Matt. Has been, <laughs> <laughs> he's been um, really into CSGO. I'm not saying he's addicted because, you know, like I've talked to him and of course he's like, I know what I'm doing. I know my stonks and all that stuff. So uh, he has been like going into like all this money. I can't help but notice like he like does check CSGO quite a bit. And I'm like, hey, babe, like, I know you're being smart with your money and you have a certain amount that you're spending per month, but I just don't trust this. And maybe it's just like, I don't trust stonks, but like, he knows it better than I do. Cause he's like, oh, babe, but like, look at the graphs and stuff. Like this one gun skin is like going up in power or not power, like in price or something like that. I got to buy it now or something, or it's like something really cool and he'll get it. And, um, yeah, it's not only just in like gambling in like a general sense or like betting on like a horse for a race or something. It's also like kind of creeping into our video games a little bit, which I find interesting, even if it's not like diagnosable addiction or something, there is that satisfaction when you do gain money, when you sell a skin and get like a few hundred dollars from it. We're addicted to a market. There's no doubt. Skill-based games are always fun because people, I think, I think we like skill-based games as much if not more than the totally random games because the roulette table is always fun but when you go to a blackjack table you feel like you have some control over it you're like all right i'm playing a game like i've got i've got some control over this when in reality you probably don't you probably have less control than you do at the roulette table um i just get concerned so the video game thing is interesting that you brought up uh i i so i'm going through something like that right now where Video games are too fun nowadays. They're way too fun. And I have to limit my time in front of it. 
I just got a game called Elden Ring, which has been out for a little while. It is it is the most fun I have ever had in a video game by so far. It's awful. I literally can't tear myself away from it. So I'm sitting here like, wow, I've got pretty good willpower. I still get up every day. I go to work. I do my thing. I work out every day. Like I, I've got I've got the willpower to run a life and do the normal things that need to be done to succeed. However, I cannot tear myself away from this darn thing. That's awful. That is so bad for the general population. If I can't do it, I guarantee that a lot of other people can't do it as well. I am not the end-all be-all. There are so many people that are way stronger than me. But wow, I feel like I have pretty decent self-control and I just can't get away from it. Yeah, Matt, do you play video games? I do, and I think I know why John sucked into it. Keeping on the gambling topic. I think you like Elden Ring so much because it has such a high risk to reward ratio. Oh. The chances of you losing, being defeated, and having a terrible time, and <laughs> being frustrated are so much higher than actually succeeding that when you finally get a win and you get through this, because it, the whole point of the game is to be ridiculously difficult, you get such a huge shot of dopamine at once. So here's the funny part of that. I, I like that you said that because the game is ridiculously hard. So I did, I, I kind of did the thing to make it easier for me where I am a magic person where all I, I, I went full magic all the way and I did it on a chance. turns out that's the easiest way to play the game. Most people just come in and they say, Hey, I'm just going to play it. Like I normally play a video game. I'm going to grab a sword and swing at it. Now I said, I'm going to think about this and play smart. The result of that, I beat, most parts of that game on the first or second try and I am super good at it. That's unhealthy. I am not supposed to be good at it. I'm not supposed to be winning consistently. And so I'm getting this unhealthy gigantic boost every time I do something. It's happening. It's like it's like a drug. It's awful. I hate it. I don't I don't use drugs. I don't like it. I don't smoke. I don't do anything. I just like alcohol and it is what it is. But I think if you get one, you're fine. If you get two, you're in trouble. Either way. It ain't good. <laughs> it's not good. Nothing wrong with getting a little reward center boost every so often. I mean, especially if you aren't getting it somewhere else. Yeah, I have a pretty good life. I don't know. I, I don't want to make this about me. I just, I've, I always find it interesting because I think games like, very highly publicized games like Fortnite and Call of Duty and I guess those are probably the biggest two. I don't. I don't really know any other ones. Either way, those are probably the biggest two. Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say like Minecraft too. I would say Minecraft's a good one, and so it's games like that that target the reward centers, and they reward you for accomplishing goals, and that accomplishment's probably not being met in your general life because you're likely working a job that you don't really care about. Whatever you you do something, but you're doing it for a paycheck. You're not doing it for the the act and the act is usually where you get that dopamine hit. So if you're lacking that and you feel fulfilled by accomplishing these little goals in this virtual world, you're going to keep coming back consistently over and over. I mean, yeah, from a biological perspective, um, I'm going to nerd out for like a hot second because mm -hmm. this is literally mm -hmm. like a big part of my psychopharm class. I was a TA for so please. The thing for addiction is often, you know, dopamine. Dopamine is really responsible for like neuromodulation in the brain. And it's especially active in this um, 
ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. It's that little pathway. And when the dopamine is like going through that little pathway and stick, um, like stimulate the nucleus accumbens, which is part of like the limbic system, that's like the area for like memory and emotions and all that good stuff. Chances are with more dopamine in that area, when you do like a fun activity, like playing Elden Ring or getting your skins on CSGO, um, chances are you're more likely going to do that over and over and over again. And while this may not be like an addiction per se, um, it is like a, like you do somewhat crave to want to go back to it. It's just like, I've had a long day at work. I want to see where the skins are in the market in CSGO. I've had a long day. Like, um, maybe I haven't had the best day. Let's play some Elder Ring. And even though it's really, really hard, but when you get that success at the end of the day, um, it's just like, oh my God, I really... I really am good at this game and like I cannot wait to like lose 10 million times again tomorrow and get that one win tomorrow. You're still hitting the reward center. Yeah. Exactly. That oh, makes sense to me. I don't I, I just I find it very interesting. I I almost wish that we could figure out a way to gamify the productive parts of the human existence because i think if we could and we've we've made some strides into that uh and the web3 world really loves this even though the web3 world's got its own issues right now i'm still a huge proponent either way when i say web3 i'm talking about uh blockchain cryptocurrency nfts three gigantic buzzwords that whatever if you know what it means you know what it means and if you can if you can incentivize humans to have a really good time while also producing something important for other people and providing value, I think that's a win-win. That's a true win-win. There is no, there's no giving up by the worker for the boss and the customer to succeed, right? We, we had that though. Did we? It used to be a thing. It was gamified in a sense. If you did well, you got a bonus. If you did well, you got a promotion. If the companies contributed to our long-term success by contributing to retirement funds, 401ks, and that type of stuff. Then came along Joe CEO and eliminated the reward system of the bonuses that we had, the uh, all, all the rest of these rewards that you used to get that our parents probably reaped of the past are gone now. And that's why we have an issue. Those, those used to be a thing. I mean, but their environments were terrible. You used to get yearly bonuses with Christmas parties. And if you stayed a certain amount of years, you got to pick from a catalog of like bikes and stereo systems and all these other things for like staying five and 10 and 20 years, however long. And when you uh, left, you got a big party that was a retirement party with all your coworkers. And then everything became so corporatized and the bonuses went away. The retention uh, gifts went away. The big parties when you leave went away. The promotions went away. They started just hiring people from outside. It used to be gamified. There was a reward system for succeeding in your field, but companies took it away because they found it cost a lot of money and they don't look at long-term money loss or gain. They're looking, okay, what's going to happen within the next two to three years? But your quality of life was so bad, like objectively, like me. I mean, whatever. Not five to ten years ago. No. You tell no. me your dad's quality uh, of life was bad or my dad's was. He loved it. Well, I was going to say, I could speak for his behalf. He, he hates what he does. He's just too good at it and makes too much money. But <laughs> this is a lawyer. All say, lawyers should hate what they do. They deserve it. Right. You can, you can tell him in person <laughs> if you want. He would probably agree with you. Either way, he's a listener here, so I don't want to talk on his behalf too much. But my point 
my point I love you, Papa Cole. Yeah, he's he's the best. We love him. But um, so if you're talking ten years ago, that's a little different because that's 2013. 2013 things weren't that much different, and we've had this crazy shift in the last four, probably four years, I would say, like massive technological shift in the last four years. But ten years ago wasn't that big of a difference. Twenty years ago, gigantic difference, absolutely enormous. Thirty years ago no one could have predicted where we are now. It wouldn't make any sense. The Jetsons would still be astounded. So, but do you still think life improved corporate-wise, as in workers and bosses-wise, that much over the past, let's say, we'll give it a nice round number of 20 to 40 years. In the past 20 to 40 years, do you think things got better or worse for people that are working in the fields? The workers have more power. It works on a pendulum, but I, I, I firmly believe this is this is the at this point in time in history, the employee in America has never had more power. Ever in the history Why are of they America. getting less? Why are they getting wait, what are you talking about? Why are they getting less? They're not getting bonuses. They have to switch jobs to get a raise if they want a raise. They're not getting any contribution to a pension plan. Their 401k match is garbage. But you have the benefits that they get via insurance are terrible. The amount of retention that you have on 10 years for people that, that are in corporations is significantly less than it was. But what's you, the answer? But you have the freedom. That's the thing. Is that's what that you so, had the freedom before. You yeah. could switch jobs anytime you wanted. If you lost your job 20 years ago, I got to tell you, it was a heartbreaking scenario. Nowadays, it's a cause for celebration. So I kind of want to ask a question to kind of tie some things we've been talking about, like earlier to what you are now. So, Jonko, from what I've heard, um, you think that the worker now has a better life than the worker of like yesterday. Is that correct? I think employees have employees in the United States of America have never had a better source of opportunities and a higher quality of life than they do at this moment today. So if that's the case, because I know earlier you were also saying that like there have also been like a rise in like problems with like social media and mental health, um, like seeing more and more mental health concerns in those areas. So how do you think it's like, how do you see how the worker may be having this better life and stuff but there's still a rise of mental health concerns. That is an excellent question. I am so happy you brought this up. And I really, again, do not want to make this about me because this is about you. Uh, but my personal opinion on this is, my. so my previous statement was, and this is on recording, so you can call me if I'm wrong because I may have said something stupid, but I'm, I apologize if I did. What I meant to say was, there has never been a better opportunity for a worker, an employee in the United States of America. This is the best time of opportunity you could have. What you said is absolutely correct. We have literally never been unhappier as workers. There is, I just, I, I, I didn't live in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. I did not. I was born in 1997. I didn't experience it. I firmly believe we are more unhappy as a population than we've ever been. And at the exact same time, we have never had more opportunities for a healthy, happy, family-filled life than before. And I don't know why it is. Go ahead, Matt. You've been I, waiting. I got two follow-up questions. Do it. Do you think we have so much opportunity because we lost all the things of the past and people are switching so much jobs that it provides more opportunity to switch? 
instead of people just staying longitudinally out of the job and the job market, there's not as much availability because people just stick where they're at. Do you think that's the cause of opportunity because everybody's moving so much? So, or do you think that more opportunity was created within the system? My answer to that, uh, I guess it kind of goes back to a lot of what we talked about before, but my answer to that is the best way I can answer it is, so there's a couple folks, my industry is very interesting and recessions weed out people in my industry. So it's very tranchy. There are, there's a giant group of 60 to 70 year olds. There's a giant group of 30 to 40 year olds. And there's a giant group of 20 to 32 ish year olds. That's what it is. There's no one in between those because that's when the recessions happened. It weeded people out. And the people at the highest tranche, the 60 to 70 year olds, are interesting. And I sort of make a little personal study of them. When I talk to them, I say, hey, I want to hear about how you made your career, what you did, and all this stuff. Also, what do you do in your free time? Interestingly enough, they do not have any hobbies. I have yet to meet one with a single hobby. Their hobby is their work. They truly love it. They enjoy it. They want nothing more than to go make a deal. That's where they get their kicks. And that's because I truly think back in their time, there wasn't anything else to do. That was it. You made your kicks off making your making the deals, making things work, and doing what you did. That's what it was because that was all there was to do. We have so much to do. We have billions of hours of Netflix to watch. Untold hours of YouTube. There is no way to quantify how much content is on the internet right now. We have so much going on. You could dedicate your life to anything. And there's no correct answer. That's that's my personal opinion. You were saying, though, that we're in a better business worth now though right opportunities there's more opportunities there's more it's greater for the workers now no but not better more opportunities i may have said better i take it back more opportunities is how i want to phrase it you're right you're right you're right you call me my bullshit that's where i was going to try to corner you because i was going to say if people in the past if they worked more they stayed at a job longer they were happier they actually found enjoyment in their job and the success they achieved in it wasn't it better than it is now? Is the sadness we have now a product of the society we've created where we jump jobs and we have these opportunities? Would it not be better to have the reward system of the past that was around 20 to 40 years ago that our parents reaped? You got me. You fully got me. No, that was better was the wrong word to use. Um, more opportunities is the word I want to go with because I don't think things are better now. I think there is more opportunity. You got me. I got to give a point to you. That's that's a great point. You're right. I, I was channeling the inner popicle I finding the word that you I used said something stupid. <laughs> no, you're right. I said something stupid. <laughs> and not only is it like more opportunities, but like what are those opportunities? I know right now when it comes to like um, more labor jobs like construction and plumbing and electricianship, there's like like a lot of spaces for that. And right now they're actually being paid more because not a lot of people want to do those. A lot of people um, want to be like lawyers, doctors, um, engineers, you know, all like those like white collar jobs. And because those are such jobs that are like higher demand as in like what people would want to do, then like all those other jobs that like people don't want to do, obviously there's more opportunities. There's more opportunities for those jobs that people don't want. I'm adamant that I would be happier if I joined the Amish and built barns all the day, all day long and read books. <laughs> Honestly, it, life would be so much better if I just lived simply. 
I'd like churned butter and built barns. Like, oh, it'd be great. Uh, they probably think the same thing about your life, though. If I could combine like having access to modern medicine and like just like not like being part of modern society at the same time, it'd be great. Dude, I fully agree. I don't know. I I find it interesting. And Lou, your point was really well made. It's it's just a strange place, and I kind of sit here and think, man. I'm going to stick with my simplicity mindset and do my best. I have a good friend I've talked about before who recently moved down to South America. Give him a shout out. Go Joey. You're kicking ass. You're doing your thing. Lou, you know him. And, yeah, um, go Joey. Go Joey. Doing his thing. And he's working a, he's work, call it a work from home, but it's not really a work from home. It's a work from the road where he does some kind of inside sales where he, he makes enough that sponsors him to travel the world and do what he wants, explore other places, man came back I had, I had a talk with him and he's like dude i've never felt better like i have seen a i've seen more of the world than i would have ever imagined doing and i feel amazing i'm, I'm sitting here thinking like damn i wish more people would do this like you've got all these work from home opportunities and we're sitting here kind of squandering them i don't think they're going to go away they're just going to change because the corporate world's going to adapt it's going to find a way to suck you back in if it's not to the office it's to some kind of connection we're going to we're going to change. We're going to adapt. This is a great time for you to explore. But a lot of people aren't. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of think about, like, how much are these opportunities talked about, too? Sure. Um, when you think of, like, stay at home, you know, you just think of stay at home. Right. But then you have some of the people who are just like, okay, stay at home. Well, I can take home, you know, to a lot of different places and really kind of going on earlier of like these adaptive traits in order to kind of not only evolve over time, but adapt to our current society. Um, that sounds really pretentious, <laughs> but no, um, I get it. just knowing how to kind of, like you said, adapt to, okay, maybe I can make my life better if I just added this little thing because they didn't say I couldn't. So why not? I think one of the key things with our generation, that's a big change is, is that, we're having to recalibrate how we quantify success. Sure. I mean, if we look within the past 50 to 100 years, a man's happiness is quantified on his success within his business and his job that he did. And as sexist as it was, a woman's uh, happiness was quantified in the success of her family, um, not necessarily her work. Now, obviously, that has changed a lot, changed a lot. And that's a very good thing. But I think both genders now and however many other genders we want to count, um, we're having to recalibrate to finding success in our life as a whole and outside of our jobs and work, whatever that may be, whether it's in the home or in a corporate field or whatever else we're having, it, it's a broader sense. I think that's where a lot of people are having issues because the standards that our parents and grandparents based everything off of are not the standards that we use anymore. I think we solved all the problems and we got bored and we got bored. We started making <laughs> shit up. We like, I, mean, I, I have a Publix right across the street. If, if I need food, I can go get it. Like I, I don't have to hunt. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to drive anywhere. I just literally walk across the street and I'm like, Oh dude, I'm getting steaks tonight. I'm literally eating a piece of a cow that I did not have to ever see or touch. And that's wild. That is wild. We don't, we don't talk about that enough at all. People just take this shit for granted. They're like, oh man, I could literally just go to the grocery store. It grocery stores are insane. <laughs> we should really talk about grocery stores and how crazy they are. Like, I have meat from Iowa being shipped right next door every single day. 
from an animal that I've never seen before. And I don't have to worry about it. I put my little plastic card and the little chip reader and I'm like, oh, guess what? I'm eating a cow tonight and that's what I do. Oh, I get fresh vegetables. Oh, that's what I do. Oh, I need this. I go do this. Like we just we just have everything. And it's almost we need to earn more things. We really do. We really need to earn more things. That's the follow up I was going to say is once we switched away from the job and career, whatever you did in your life as work, as our model of success, it came to be the things that we own and are able to buy and do. And then we created lines of credit, whether it's a credit card or a loan or whatever else. Yeah. And there's so many people that have not shit in the bank <laughs> and drive an $80,000 truck or buy lobster or whatever else and go on vacations. And they've just got stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of loans. Now this is coming from someone who's going to medical school and taking out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans to do what he wants to do. But hear me out. We shouldn't be using as much credit to buy things that we can't afford. <laughs> and as someone who, if I go to PhD school, is going to be earning less than the poverty line in a few years, um, <laughs> um, I can safely concur. You know, me and my boyfriend were talking about this, and he's like, you know, for a lot of people who want so many things and like get that happiness from like wanting to be rich and wanting to have like all these like cool cars and stuff like that those are actually some of the poorer people because like you said they're they're owning a lot of things but they don't have like a lot of money left because all that money went to things a lot of the people ironically forget that people who are rich tend to have a lot of money like floating around and kind of moving it's a very fluid Thing. So if your whole goal is to be rich and that's what's going to make you happy and get you buy all these things, like you're literally going against your goal here. And thus you just perpetuate your state of unhappiness. You nailed it. They're, they're, they're trying to look rich for the sake of looking rich because they think it'll make them happy. There will always be new and more things to buy. You're never going to look as rich as you want to. But Matt, find what you want. Create the goal, achieve that, be happy. He he who yeah. dies with or he slash she she slash they who dies with the most stuff wins. Didn't you know that? Yeah, I keep hearing you want to inscribe that on your gravestone and all these episodes that I do. missed out on. I do. I want it I want it ironically inscribed on my gravestone. I want everyone to look at it and say, <laughs> What a pretentious asshole. But if they really know me, they'll think, ah, I get it. <laughs> It'll just be like, wow, what a troll. Yeah, yeah, seriously. He says that SpongeBob meme with him with the long beak nose on the back of it with that quote underneath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, it's going to have all like opposite uh, lowercase, uppercase letters. Oh, exactly. My oh, it's going to be, yeah, he who dies with the most stuff wins. And it's all going to, it's just going to be a giant meme. <laughs> <laughs> uh, watch someone who goes to your grave while actually you be on the grave oh my <laughs> gosh like, well actually yeah i would love that get some i don't know so what is it um sahil bloom put up something and he he advertised this a lot since he did the and i love the guy i think he's really funny i've talked to him a few times and one of the things he does is like look treasure your family you realistically as a 35 year old probably are only going to see your family 12 more times maybe 15 something like that if you see him once a year like i at, like at most you're not going to see him that many more times before enough people are gone that it's like there's everyone's gone pretty much and you start to break that down you think holy shit your career is not as important as you thought it was you know what matters 
your fucking tribe, <laughs> your people, your friends, your family. Those are the things that make it worth it. Because why are you doing all these things? Well, you're doing them so you can have a wonderful life and see them more. But if you were doing it the whole time and you never see them, what has happened? They're gone. You have lost. That is it. The game of life is literally 100% won by they who see their friends and family the most and have the most happiness through them. I will swear by it. I can second this. My family in middle school uprooted us and moved us to the town where my grandparents lived, both my mom's and dad's side, which as a kid royally pissed me off sure. because I don't understand the grand scheme of things. But the reason they did it was because my grandparents were getting older on my mom's and dad's side. And what that meant for us was is going through junior high and high school, I got to spend a lot of time with my grandparents that I would not have gotten. I would have gotten less than... 12 more times, like John said, spending time with them. But instead, I got almost weekly visits with my grandparents that I got to see them, hanging out with them, have dinners, whatever else, which I wouldn't have gotten if we were as separate as we were. And I think my parents, I guess, kind of realized what John was saying. We're like, okay, let's remedy this. If Yeah. Go absolutely. ahead, Lou. Finding your family is, or not only valuing your family, but also your found family. Um, I'll admit, I don't come from the best background in terms of my family. To keep it short, um, there is a divorce between my mom and my dad. They don't get along with each other. There's substance abuse involved. And there's a lot of things like mental health wise that need to be checked and have not been worked on. Um, so when it comes to like dealing with, um, and I hate say dealing with when it comes to family, because obviously family is important. Um, but also not only spending times with the family who is really like helpful to you and like you are helpful to them back um and actually cares about you um and you need to and it's sad that some people have had to learn like that some family members are not worth it and are just toxic and draining on your energy and stuff it just makes you value the family that you have more that do care about you I know I have a very close relationship with my dad and my sister and my aunt and my uncle and my cousin who is in law school. And I hope he appreciates us making fun of lawyers for a second. He just got his JD at um, Wake Forest. But um, yeah, 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 he's he's thriving right now. But yeah, so family is important, even if some of the people who are not great to you and to the people that you love that just means that you love the people within your family who do treat you with kindness and you do the same for them, that mutual relationship. That to me is just so much more important. You don't have to answer this if it's too personal. Do you, do you think that that kind of background has led you to, to love the things that you love? Because you're very into this whole, you, you love the deep dive into psychology and all this. And I, that's what I like about you. <laughs> I know like, if the grad schools that I was interested in were like listening to this, um, <laughs> they might be like, oh, I don't know, but um, yeah, to an extent it is now granted more of what I'm motivated by is that curiosity and that knowledge and stuff. But yeah, absolutely having that background where you see like the difference between um, people who are good for your energy and good, not good for your energy or like people who have mental health concerns and people who have less of them, 
um, you see that difference. And I just was always fascinated by like personal differences. And it all started when I was actually in middle school. I did a science fair project in hydroponics, which is funny because I now still have my hydroponic garden. And I got first place, go to regionals, and there was this little section called behavioral sciences. I was looking at all these little studies and I was just like, these are so cool. And it's talking about like writing styles and what's the best for like note taking. There was like processing speed and like how fast somebody could remember something. I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. And I told my teacher, Mrs. Gagnon, and she's like, yo, this sounds like you would be such a good psychologist then. And ever since then, um, I have been wanting to be a psychologist. You know what the strange thing is? the majority of successful people in the world that run companies that are making a name for themselves that are changing the world for the better end up going into one of three fields and none of them are general business they are psychology political science and finance and i don't have numbers to go behind that but the only thing that all those three majors have in common is it's the study of how things interact with each other. That is it. And if you can understand how A interacts with B, then you can begin to figure out how humans work. And if you start to have a general understanding, because no one really understands how, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but unless it's changed, I don't think we have a true understanding of how the human brain works, right? Absolutely not. I mean, we still have research going on to this day saying like, hey, this study's full of shit. Uh, actually, this study is onto something. Actually, this study has like two participants. Why do you have such a small um, number of participants? Um, or like, we're always finding fault with the research that has that we've been learning for years. Like the things that I've been saying about the basal ganglia, the hippocampus, the nucleus accumbens. This is all based off of research. This is all theoretical stuff. At the end of the day, in fact, a lot of our knowledge is based off of like theories and stuff like that in the medical field, psychology and all of that. I mean, there's a few things that we can guarantee like history, like, oh, this thing absolutely happened. And even then, like there's some parts of history where, you know, the winners of history get to write the history. Some parts of history are erased. So even that part of human knowledge is still not concrete. So when it comes to uh, the human brain, that's the cool thing about it. Much like the neuroplasticity of our brain allowing us to change our biology in as a result of brain injury or genetics or our environment or whatever else. Um, just like our brain changes, we can change. And that's that's a cool thing. Our knowledge changes. It's that's the cool thing of being human, understanding that there are patterns, but also there are things that are very unpredictable. I love it. And I actually couldn't agree more. And I love the change. I think the change is what's fun. We're running up against time. And I actually I actually can't think of a better way to sort of wrap it up around that. It's just sort of the love of change and embracing all that. So did you have a good time? I that's what I always that's what I always ask. Oh yes, I absolutely did. I loved nerding out, going into tangents about the brain and philosophy and psychology. And thank you guys for having me. This was a really fun time. You got to meet Chelsea at some point. I know Matt loved it because you guys can both gang up on me on this stuff. And it's usually, so Chelsea <laughs> and Matt both disagree with me on everything under the sun, which is fun. That's why we work. That's why we had such a good time. And I know Matt, Matt definitely enjoyed having someone to team up against me with. 
<laughs> oh, this, this is like my favorite episode. The fact oh, that they really? had another science person to like help gang up on you. Oh, it was chef's kiss. <laughs> I'll tell, I agree. I'll tell you sometime <laughs> off air about how how we work together so well. But either way, all right. Good night. This was fun. We're gonna have you on again sometime because I I'd love this. And if you ever want to come on, you're welcome to. Oh, dude, absolutely. And meet Chelsea finally. You will. All right. See ya. <laughs>